Yeah, it's one of the wonderful things about Christmas is to give. That's part of the vibe of Christmas because, you know, God gave us our greatest need and gave it to us lavishly. Welcome to the Essentially Translatable Podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. My name is Richard Oski. I'm the Chief Operating Officer here at LBT. Today's episode is a collection of Christmas stories from our missionaries, staff, and partners around the globe. Cozy up by the fire or in a comfy chair and join me and my co-host, LBT's Public Relations Coordinator, Emily Wilson, as we journey through Christmas around the world, Lutheran Bible Translator style. Welcome to a special Christmas edition of the Essentially Translatable Podcast. I am Rich Rudowski here with... Emily Wilson. And we are going to share some Christmas stories from our friends and colleagues here in Lutheran Bible Translators. And different than a lot of our episodes, this one will just be a little bit longer and you get the opportunity to, to hear from a lot of different perspectives and just cozy up by the fire and maybe turn it on, turn it off, come back to it, whatever works for you over the Christmas break to just hear some different perspectives on Christmas. What do you love about Christmas, Emily? Oh, I love the cooking and the baking and, you know, I'm not really into the snow. Right, right. (laughs) I have uh, become a little bit of a greenhouse plant over the years, but just all of the festivities, but especially the Christmas traditions in the church, just, you know, all of the Advent traditions and seeing... The decorations come up and the sanctuary and the the hymns, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, my favorite, all of the theology. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So tell us a little bit about these stories, where we got them from and, and right. some of the themes here. So we contacted our missionaries, our staff to see, hey, what what do you love about Christmas? And what are some special memories that you have? So just kind of gleaned from there some things that you can connect to regardless of where you are in the world, whether you're in the Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere. These are things that, you know, traditional stories. And the first one here by Barb Bierman, she's a staff member here in Concordia. And I love her story because it really reminds me of a story that I had growing up with our nativity set that we would set up and, you know, kind of playing with them. She shared with us, growing up, my parents always had a manger scene arranged on top of a low cabinet. And when one of my siblings' kids visited around the holidays, which was often, I noticed something strange afterward. Some of the pieces, specifically the lambs, were out of place like they had been knocked over. Later, I noticed that they were back in the correct position and assumed someone had straightened them up on the display. I watched the next time, and sure enough, my niece spent a lot of time in front of the manger. She looked at it intently and moved the characters a bit here and there, and finally she turned over the lambs and walked away. I stopped her to ask why she had done that, and she said the lambs needed their naps, too. Apparently, she had turned them over and set them upright again later when nap time was over. (laughs) (laughs) It's like that interactive nativity set before that even came out from Fisher Price. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, lambs need naps, too. uh, We could all learn from that. (laughs) Right. 
I also, I remember I'm an older sibling and my younger siblings always move in stuff around there. That's one of the great things about them is they're, they can be interactive and kind of a 3D representation. I think that's why the story of Christmas is so vivid for for kids. And then as you grow into adulthood, there's so many vivid memories from childhood because it's such a really an interactive and it's unusual, but there's something very close to home about it too. I love the nativity sets too that I've seen from our international partners as well. You know, like there's the wood carvings or seeing the Ethiopian depiction in an illustration and just how they visualize it from their cultural perspectives and the different colors that we use and associate versus uh, what is really important. It's just seeing how we can bring it into our culture and reflect on that and just also capture a visual, right? We are, we're full of the imagination and wanting to reach out and see and how we capture that in, you know, Sunday school programs with, you know, those adorable little angels dressed up. (laughs) I was the angel one year. Uh, (laughs) But just how much we seek to connect with scripture and the, the nativity story and in general, so yeah, yeah I, for some reason I can remember the first time when I was at my grandparents' church for Christmas that I made the connection <laughs> that Christmas was about Jesus' birth. Like you know, we heard the <laughs> stories and sang the songs, but I was like, oh, okay, this is what this is all about. So, right, yeah. just that kind of kinetic, right? But there's and the thing is, is that um, Christmas in in our American context has a lot of stuff that goes with it that you just take for granted as all part of the Christmas experience. And some of these next stories sort of uh, touch on that as you move to different parts of the world and experience different things that you've connected with Christmas, but you see that Christmas is still happening even though the weather is different, the food is different. And so uh, we're going to hear from Chris Pluger from his story of uh, their first Southern Hemisphere Christmas in Zambia and uh, some of the things they uh, ran into. So one of our big family traditions for Christmas time is homemade sugar cookies decorated with frosting. This is the big thing that we always do with Janine's mom. And ever since Sean's been just a tiny kid, he's always loved Christmas cookies. So our first year in Zambia, just because it was our first year in Zambia, there were no sugar cookies at all. And it was very sad. We had none of the stuff to make it. We couldn't do Christmas cookies, and so we just, it was Christmas without cookies, and it was sad. So for our second Christmas, Janine made very careful plans to make sure we had everything that we needed. So when we were in the capital, we had to buy the fancy refined sugar, um, because the normal raw sugar we could buy locally didn't make good sugar cookies. We got some African animal-shaped cookie cutters, Santa sleighs. We had giraffes and rhinos and and elephants. Um, We even had a big Africa-shaped one, which was cool, because then we could put red hots on the places where we lived. So we got those from a tourist shop in Lusaka, and then we even had somebody who came to visit us bring some Crisco because her mom's Christmas cookie recipe, which is the only proper Christmas cookie recipe, has to have real Crisco in it. So we had all of those things to sort, and then when when the my mom was actually there for that, so we all had this big Christmas cookie-making party, and we made dozens and dozens of cookies, and we're rolling them out and all of that. The downside was it was so hot that the cookies spread way too much when they were on the pan and they were like paper thin and all the icing ran. But once we figured all that out and put them in the fridge right away, it was it was a lot of fun and it tasted good. And it was finally a real Christmas because we had Christmas cookies. 
So that was awesome. Right. <laughs> there has never been so much preparation for Christmas cookies. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I really take for granted just being able to go down to the store and pick up just sugar, just just a pound of sugar. Right. <laughs> but how special those memories are for them, even the runny icing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yep. And just, yeah, to get the, the stuff to make cookies, though, some of those specialty items, they're so complicated. I can remember we also made some cookies and we were explaining to some of the folks there. They asked, well, how did you make these? Because they... They, they're like these are really good how'd you make them so my wife says well you use a cup of of sugar and they said what size cup <laughs> and so she shows them that there's these measuring cups that are standard size and the woman looks at this cup and she says oh this is powerful <laughs> i love it uh yeah you know there is so much within the Christmas baking tradition, too, of sharing yep. and how much it's, you know, the, the coveted recipes and, you know, you, that you hold them tight to you. But also then everyone expects that plate of cookies, right? Yeah. My, my cousins always expect, you know, those sandwich cookies from my mother. And no, she makes them the best way. But how important it is too for our cultural expectations within Christmas of sharing and gift giving. And so Chris actually shared with us too a story of gift giving in Zambia, Southern Africa. One of our favorite parts of Christmas in Zambia was making and delivering the presents that we got for the special people that worked with us. And there were six of them. So there was our, our local pastor, there were the three translators for our Bible project, um, and then there were our two houseworkers. So we would go out to the supermarket in the capital before the holidays and pick up all sorts of just kind of normal householdy things. We'd get flour and sugar and tea and a bottle of cooking oil and some salt, rice and beans, candles, matches, watching paste, sweets for the kids, cookies, whatever we could think of. And we would buy those in the capital. And it was so fun to just walk through the store and think, oh, what, what do people use? What do people need? And then we buy six of them. So we'd load up our shopping cart with six of all of these different things, you know, bags of flour and, and the whole bit. I mean, it was so much fun to decide what we would get every year and pick out a couple of fun things. Um, so then we'd get back to our, our village and we'd put them all into everything into a large plastic bucket because you can never have enough plastic buckets in Zambia, especially the nice ones with the lids. Um, and so we'd load those up with all the stuff, you know, so we'd have six buckets lined up and it'd be like a, a supply chain or a, an assembly line and Sean would help us put them all in. Um, and then we'd go and deliver them on Christmas Eve day. So with all the holiday cooking and the special company that, that people had, everybody loved and appreciated this extra little contribution because then they could make fresh bread and do, do things like that that were very special for their company, kind of provide that for them. The last year we were there, the translators had kind of figured us out, and she had a chicken ready to give to us um, in exchange. So that was fun, too. So we got a live chicken for Christmas. But the main thing was, was delivering those buckets because that was just so much fun to, to just do that that little sort of everyday thing for people that was so appreciated. 
Yeah, it's one of the wonderful things about Christmas is to give and just know that whether it's a, an important need or even what maybe other times of the year is kind of just a frivolous need. That's part of the vibe of Christmas because, you know, God gave us our greatest need and gave it to us lavishly. And so part of the gift of like, well, do I really need this? Well, the you know, Jesus coming is more than we need. It's so much more than we need. And that's that's really great. So that, that gift giving and just experiencing the joy of putting it together, thinking it through. It's uh, so much fun. I love it. And just the relationship that comes yeah. through that of, you know, maybe there are some gifts that we receive over the years. Who got me that? I don't know. But right. like the fact that, you know, I love that they figured me out. You know? yeah. <laughs> and yeah. just the relationship that came with it of, you know, they were so intentional. Like what do, what do people want? What do people need? And being able to reach out and say, you know, this is me caring for you and loving you and uh, being a neighbor and just that reciprocation too. I, I've never gotten a live chicken for Christmas right. before. Right, yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So also, you know, thinking about traditions, right? So there's baking and, you know, we talked about the nativity set and gift giving, but there, you know, also the antici- anticipation leading up to Christmas yeah. and the joy of being able to reflect on the years of waiting for a messiah and and the savior and so i grew up with an advent calendar but it was kind of a low scale you know it was it was a chocolate calendar (laughs) so probably less meaningful than alvina federwitz has this awesome story of an advent calendar that she made but uh rather than me telling it to you because you know there's so much more to it. Let's hand it over to Alvina. My late husband, Reverend Dale Federwitz, and I became members of Lutheran Bible Translators in August of 1971, which just made me realize that next year is going to be 50 years already that I've been a member of Lutheran Bible Translators. In 1973, my late husband and I were assigned to work among a very Muslim group of people. I mean, when I, they were very conservative, and this was in Liberia, West Africa. And I remember when we got to Liberia, and we were going to be introduced to the group of people we were going to work among, which was the Mendingo. It took us 23 trips to go and find the Paramount chief. He was never there when we got there. And every time we went to meet him, We had to leave our children with strangers because we were brand new in Liberia. And at that time, Jonathan was only two years old and Becca was only one year old. And the last night that just before we finally met him, I just said, I can't do this anymore because they just, our children just did not like being alone all the time away from us. And then when we moved into the village and we met with the town leadership, I remember them telling us, well, we've had two mission groups that have moved into our village, and when they started church, we asked them to leave, and so don't start a church, and we said, well, we weren't going to do that. We were going to put God's word into a language they understood, and they could decide how they wanted to worship God, and that seemed to be okay with them, so I'm giving you that preamble to why I developed an advent calendar for our children, and so I'm going to read what I have, what has become a book now because the advent calendar has become a part of our family and let me just say that 
I, we have four children and all four of them are missionaries, uh, Bible translation missionaries. And so this calendar that I'm going to be telling you about is being used by all four families. And this is what I wrote in the book. And it's a note to the parents who are going to be using this calendar. This Advent calendar began taking shape in November of 1974. We, Dale Nalvina with Jonathan, age three, and Rebecca, age two, were living in a very small mud block house made by the Muslim Mandingo people of, in Bakidu, Liberia, West Africa. There was not one thing that remotely resembled Christmas was approaching. Instead of snow, harmaton, which is dust from the Sahara Desert, descended upon everything in our house, making the heat and humidity even more unbearable. Instead of church bells, we heard the ritual Muslim town crier calling people to pray to Allah. There was no electricity or American-type stores in our town, and we were lucky if we could even find a few simple commodities, much less Christmas decorations and hear Christmas music that would have prepared us for a season if we had been in the States. I realized that it would take some creativity to prepare our hearts for Christmas. Initially, I considered sticking a few palm branches into a bucket of sand and decorating them with popcorn strings and homemade ornaments. However, our five foot by 10 living room hardly lent itself for a Christmas tree. Besides, that would have been very non-cultural in this Muslim tropical rainforest village. I dug through my box of fabric and I came across a two-yard piece of red gingham check piece of fabric and various colorful scraps of felt that I had brought with me from the States. So with Jonathan in hand and Rebecca on my back and David in my belly, who arrived two months later, I walked into town, went to a shop that had a few pieces of fabric. There I found a blue-greenish fabric that would have been sold to make trousers for a man. By Thanksgiving of 1974, I had used my hand sewing machine to sew a blue greenish tree onto the red gingham check cloth. I had put pockets on the bottom of this tree and I had decorated the tree with some rick rack and trimmings I had found in my craft box. So when Advent started, the, the, boxes at the, the pockets at the base of the tree were ready for ornaments. And so I was in the process of making them each day. During Advent of 1974, each afternoon, I was trying to get an ornament ready for the kids to put onto the tree that evening. A few of the ornaments were ideas I had gotten from a pattern I had seen at a fellow missionary's home, but basically they were original. Dale added a few ideas here and there and particularly helped me find appropriate Bible ref references that fit my themes for the ornaments. As our years in Liberia passed, our children grew and we added new Bible references, many of which were never really written down. And those that were, were lost in the Liberian Civil War that began in Chris at Christmas of 1989. Then the day came that we became grandparents and my children wanted to pass this tradition onto their families. And so uh, Dale and I took the time to revise it in 1998 and pass it on. It, it was our prayer that this Advent calendar would be passed on from one generation to the next, and it would help keep the true meaning of Christmas in the Federowitz family. Since the Advent season does not have the same number of days each year, we had to make text for angel ornaments in such a way that in the years that have more days, you can use the full text, and in short Advent season, you can skip some of the text. When our children were small, 
you may want to give them a, a very abbreviated version of each text for the ornament you put on the tree. However, as they grow up, it may be good to let them read the text or the Bible preferences. Perhaps they have original ideas of how the ornament reminds them of something regarding to who Jesus is and why he is the source of our salvation. This could lend itself to a good family discussion regarding preparing one's heart for Christmas. That is a pretty beautiful <laughs> advent calendar. I mean, yes. all of the detail that went into arranging for it, right? right. <laughs> Baby back uh, going into the local market and finding the right material and she goes on and hopefully we can you know share more about all of the detail the the verses that go along with each of the ornaments is just incredible but she has used this and the family has used this to prepare their hearts each christmas for the the true meaning why uh we are in need of a savior and how he came uh and has uh, delivered us it's just really a beautiful opportunity to reflect on the christmas season and you know i also have heard that it's been used as an evangelism tool for her grandchildren which is really pretty awesome when you think about it yeah, it's it's really amazing, and this the seeds that were sown. You know, she probably had no idea at the beginning when she's got a baby on her back and another baby inside, and she's walking through this hot market finding this scraps of material that you know that it would end up being used this way and so near and dear to her family, and like you said, even used as a tool to to reach out and share the gospel. So those those small seeds, those labors of love. I mean, I heard her say the words hand sewing machine. I'm not even sure what that <laughs> means. I thought they were either like hand sewing or sewing machine. So that sounds like an extra level of complexity to me. And so what a gift. And, you know, at the beginning of her story when she talked about there was nothing around that could that could prepare <laughs> me for Christmas. I mean, she was thinking of, you know, decoration-wise, environment-wise, weather-wise. Those are the same experiences that that my family and I had when we went to Botswana uh, more than 10 years ago now. And also, we, we went in July. We already knew this is going to be different. We had two winters uh, because <laughs> we had the regular winter in in uh, Michigan, and then when we got to Botswana, it was winter again, uh, which is not nearly as bad, but it was cold. And and uh, then we came to summer in November and December. And at that time, I actually wrote a uh, reflection that was published, and I'm just going to read some of that of, of what we were experiencing. So what is Christmas to you? Probably most of you listening will know that the correct answer is supposed to be things like, it's the day we remember the birth of Jesus. It's the, Jesus is the reason for the season. You might even use theological words like incarnation or talk of the wonder of God becoming flesh. And of course, you're right. It is all those things. But the reality is that for all of us, lots of other things have gotten wrapped up with Christmas and they're very much a part of it for us as well. Things like family. Church celebrations by candlelight, Advent services, Christmas trees, and tons of lights. And if you live far enough north, snow is a part of Christmas. Retail shopping madness and grabbing a cup of Starbucks while making the frosty rounds are part of Christmas. 
turkey and mashed potatoes and watching bowl games are part of it. We don't say or act like these things are necessary, but for many of us, these are important aspects of Christmas. So in 2009, my wife, my five children, and I moved to the rural Kalahari Desert village of Kang in the southern African nation of Botswana. And we were there to help translate the Bible into Shikalahari, a minority language spoken by over 200,000 people. And a few months after we arrived there, our first celebration of Christmas came. And we experienced all those familiar things being stripped away from our celebration of Christmas. Advent services, not there. Christmas lights, we did see a few in the city, but electricity is like a prepaid commodity and a luxury, so nobody wasted on things like Christmas lights. Starbucks and fr- making the frosty rounds, no way. I mean, Nescafe and is too hot anyways, and more like ice water and 100-degree temperatures in the southern African summer. Christmas Eve celebrations by candlelight. Now, the candles would have melted in that church. It was a midnight service in a stifling tin building, and I actually got sick and had to leave early on that first Christmas Eve. And the next morning, we didn't wake up early to go to Grandma's. Instead, my kids and I got up early on Christmas morning. We went with our neighbors from the village to their cattle post, and there we helped them slaughter a goat for Christmas dinner. That's right. Our Christmas dinner was alive on Christmas morning. (laughs) (laughs) And instead of a pine Christmas tree filling the living room with that wonderful aroma, we made our Christmas tree by tracing our hands on green paper. We cut those out and taped them to the wall. We waited till almost 4 o'clock in the afternoon to let the heat of the day pass, and then we gathered for Christmas dinner with our neighbors. We ate outside in a shady, sandy area of our yard, and we had potato salad and watermelon complementing that main course of goat. Many people here spend Christmas at their home village, and... um, They go to the village gathering spot to watch traditional dance and choir competitions. There was no football. There was no pie. There was no Christmas bargain shopping or after Christmas bargain shopping. It was so different. And I never realized how much being a Northern Hemisphere Christian had influenced my feelings of Christmas. I never realized how much I expected Santa and snowmen as much as Jesus and a manger. And incidentally, I was in Ethiopia around Christmas time a few years ago and the missionaries I was with, we visited an Anglican church while we were there for, and they had a Christmas service, and it was just, it made me laugh inside all the carols we sang that had to do with snow and starry nights and all this stuff. I mean, that's just what we have, we have really wrapped that all together, and so I never realized how much that was affecting my view of Christmas. I never expected that the sun staying up till 9.30 on Christmas Eve would take some of that holiness out of the silent night. But in all of it, one thing really came through to me. You strip all that other stuff away, and the historical fact remains, God became man. Jesus was born of a virgin in a small Middle Eastern village some 2,000 years ago in a place that was actually quite a bit like the village I was living in at that time. And his arrival in world history irrevocably altered the course of the universe and everything within it. He made it possible for all of us to be reconciled to God. And with so many things different, so many things missing from our celebration of Christmas, that fact just became more prominent and clearer to me. You can take away all the stuff of Christmas, which is good, and it's great for celebrating. But you take them all away, and you still have Jesus. You still have the incarnation. He came to walk uh, among the human race in a very different place than the glory of heaven. He gave up his glory to lead us to God. And only in being completely removed from all that I'd come to find familiar and and 
myself striving to become incarnate in another place and another culture could I really focus on the real gift of Christmas God became man in Jesus Christ and we had the privilege to share that good news and that is the greatest gift of all that's so awesome that perspective right and that posturing and I wonder how many of us during this pandemic and this unusual season of where the traditions are no longer um, the, quite as present, yeah. right? How many of us will be similarly reflecting right. of what, what is really, you know, the, the heart of the season and how is it that I have filled it up, right? Yeah. It's true. I, I read in the news recently, you know, some, I forget who, and I don't want to be political, but some government official saying, well, Christmas may not be possible. And I think what what that person meant to say is the type of celebrations you're used to celebrating. But, you know, that is, Christmas is so much more than that. And like you said, there is nothing that can come, pandemic or otherwise, that will prevent Christmas from actually coming, you know, the celebration, because Jesus has come absolutely so wanting to share from a different region in africa uh, michael ursland who recently spent his first term in ghana west africa and his experience a little bit from a similar perspective but also completely unique and all of the celebration leading up to uh, so wanting to share michael's story Hello, I'm Michael Ersland, uh, working with the Combe Old Testament Translation Project in Ghana. And when I think about Christmas in Combe Land, I think of churches from the area all gathering together for several days for Christmas convention. And it's just an exciting time, a high adrenaline. Worship services starting in the morning, going to the afternoon, and then starting in the evening and going to midnight. Just awesome to be together with fellow believers, uh, Combo brothers and sisters in Christ. And something that one of the pastors likes to preach on is Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. That is, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And just this joy that we have as people that, knowing that God loves us, interacts with us, and sent Jesus to provide this hope, this light into our lives. And as we're gathering together at night for evening worship for Christmas convention, and it's dark with some lights shining, people's flashlights, or um, maybe a generator-powered light. And as the pastor's preaching and saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come, it's just exciting to get to experience that also of being in this darkness and realizing what a gift light is in that Christ is the light for our lives and we have this light during Christmas um, that we remember and he comes and dwells among us. So 
that's a memory, something from Combaland that I've learned from my brothers and sisters in Christ in Bintiri, Ghana, and hope to share with you. And I hope that you have a light-filled, Christ-filled, joyous Christmas. And so for my wife, Naomi, and I, we wish you a Merry Christmas. It's so true how being in a different place highlights different parts of Scripture and there the darkness and the light really coming through in those Old Testament texts, those prophecies pointing to. And that's in Southern Africa. You know, we look at Advent and really focus on the darkness and light. And of course, there's all kinds of prophecy that does that. But there are a whole bunch of other prophecies about the Messiah that talk about water and deserts turning into places of growth. And uh, one year at uh, one of the churches there for Advent, instead of having candles, they had four glasses, uh, three of them purple and one of them pink. And each uh, Sunday, they filled one of them up with water <laughs> and had texts to do with uh, the prophecies of Christ coming. And, and that fit the context because weather-wise, uh, the dry season has been dragging on. And when you get to the time of Advent, you're also hoping for those first rains. And so it's just really you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, it's that time of darkness. And you go to some of the historical development of Christmas. It does have to do with like, it just keeps getting dark earlier and earlier. <laughs> and is it ever going to be light again? And, and, and so the way that scripture connects to life, regardless of where you are and what you're experiencing, uh, the Holy Spirit has masterfully woven together the scripture that will, will touch you uh, one way or another. Yeah, and just thinking about the imagery, you know, how scripture is so alive with that imagery of essential, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking about the original context where light was, we didn't have light pollution, right? And thinking about when it was dark, it was utterly dark. And what was out beyond the fringes of your, your settlement might hurt you, right? And how light brings life, it brings protection, and thinking about the Messiah as that uh, life and protection. Absolutely. Thinking about water in the desert being life and protection of uh, your surviving, right? It's beyond just how and then beyond just surviving, but thriving, mm. and how how powerful that imagery is. And like you said, the spirit is at work that this is uh, relevant for any context, wherever, and how people have adapted accordingly within, right, Southern Africa, it keeps getting lighter in those evenings. Right. But water is that, that commodity, that scarcity, and so drawing in, that's just... It's amazing how the church can sharpen one another in different regions. And Jim Kaiser has a story, too, about maybe it's not the elements per se, but a common life experience of travel and how that has impacted his understanding of the uh, nativity story of uh, thinking about the travel of Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem and how much that has really changed his understanding over the years from his own personal experiences. It was my first Christmas Eve in Africa. Susan and I were bumping along a rural dirt road in northern Sierra Leone. 
It was getting late in the day, so I was trying to hurry as much as possible so that we would reach our destination before dark. But Susan, who was expecting our first son in two weeks, kept begging me to slow down so that she wouldn't get shaken around so much. My mind went to another man who also had to travel on rough roads with his pregnant wife. Did Joseph sometimes have to hurry so that they would reach their lodging by nightfall? Did Mary sometimes beg him to slow down so that her stomach didn't bounce so much on the back of the donkey? Those are answers that we will never know here on earth. But that experience did give me more of a connection to the human part of the Christmas story of God actually becoming a baby in Mary's womb. Yeah, if you've ever ridden with Jim Kaiser, you know Susan's concerns are real. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I love that take on things that um, just the, the, the humanity of the story, because the Christmas story is, I mean, it's very, uh, in one way, sanitized. None of us have walked or ridden on donkeys for, you know, this is a like a 40-mile trip for Mary and Joseph. I go 40 miles to just go to Walmart, you know, <laughs> and I, I do it all in one day. But that's a major undertaking uh, for most of human history, honestly, mm-hmm. and even in many parts of the world today, it still can be a major undertaking even just to go that kind of distance. And I love that uh, being in that that context that, again, is probably more similar to the biblical context. It It takes your mind to these relationships going on, Joseph and Mary, and how are they interacting on this this trip? And absolutely, and human relationships of like here's a a man and woman who really don't necessarily know each other that well, sure. <laughs> and yeah. travel brings out the best and the worst of us. It can. That's true. <laughs> but thinking about, like you said, the how we sanitize it. Um, certainly, my nativity set that I have, uh, Mary is looking very sharp, very clean, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know everyone is clean and pristine, and the hair is just so and. Right. Right. Just thinking about Jesus, um, you know, the incarnation, God becoming man. That was a messy business. <laughs> it was. If you think, uh, you just, I wonder, you know, if the angels are in heaven saying, you really, you want to send them <laughs> at this time and this place? I mean, you know, it's going to get better uh, <laughs> hospital wise and cleanliness wise. But. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh, this is so true. <laughs> Uh, Martin uh, Weber, a longtime missionary in Cameroon with his wife Joan, talks about the Kwanja world uh, there, um, and the uh, the Kwanja are some of the folks they've worked with over the years, and how their world is much more like Mary and Joseph's world than than our world too. So he tells this story: Our son Nathan has his birthday on December twenty third. Uh, so one year we invited a few friends, he puts in quotes, uh, and, and it says more than 50 came, but that's another story, and uh, I have been there, my friend. And uh, so they came, and Martin says, I told them this Christmas story. As I did, it struck me that what happened to Jesus' parents could easily happen in Yimberi here in Cameroon. Government orders a census, no questions asked, you go where they say, when they say. No vehicles, you walk, maybe one donkey if you're lucky. The distance Nazareth to Bethlehem is similar to the distance to the divisional headquarters north of Yimberi, a logical place to demand a census. Getting there requires some days on the road. Mary is very pregnant. Joseph is very concerned. 
Getting there, the town is full of people. No surprise, Bethlehem would be the ancestral home for many people. Place to sleep? Nope. Okay, you go in that cave stable. Midwife? Maybe. (laughs) But right there was born the only son of God. God chose that place. Those circumstances. Because incarnation had to have him come all the way down to the level of ordinary people. I love that he has been able to draw so many connections and how powerful that is to the community. Because not everyone who showed up was probably Christian, right? Sure. And being able to bring it into a, wait, this is really relatable. (laughs) Yeah. You know how this is. Yeah. Yeah. And just to his point, I mean, Jesus was not born in a palace. So somehow Joseph is related to David, but I mean, he's not the guy in that line somehow because he's not he's not powerful or reigning on anyone's throne so yeah so he's he's just a normal guy and jesus is just uh born in these really uh unusual but very humble and maybe even normal Mm -hmm. circumstances i think we think of it as unusual but uh maybe it's not (laughs) for most of the world and most of history these are the the ways things are People who have power tell you to do something, you go and do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the midst of that, here comes God to say, you know, the gospel is going to have the last word here. Right. That it's the incarnation of more than just this humanity, but the incarnation and redeeming of all these facets of life. The very human experience of not only living and breathing and eating and sleeping, but also being under, you know, what does it mean to be under government? What does it mean to be under a father and mother? And all of these things that he experienced and did perfectly and that, you know, he redeemed it. We, We can't do it, but he did it for us. It's just so, so powerful, so empowering too as a Christ follower to share that with others that people who don't know, they think that it's, you know, a faith for a lofty life and that you have to be a certain way all of the time that it's like no jesus entered into the mess the everyday and redeeming that it's just i get excited (laughs) so true yeah so thinking about from the Kwanja perspective, you know, they they were hearing this Christmas story, mm. maybe for the first time. And similarly, uh, Jim Lash shares a story about the Graybo people in Liberia and how they were hearing this story in a new way, maybe for the first time, some mm. of the people in the village, but really the ownership that came with it of how do we not only see this as a story long time ago, but really a story for us and how it relates to our culture, our time, yeah. our values. He is one of us, Luke 2-7 in northern Grable of Liberia. Okona o nisadu o moa dibidudu o fifiea o dubrudaro o peana o bununua she birthed her firstborn a boy child she wrapped him with a newborn cloth and then she laid him in the animal feed box newborn cloth is a grable tradition 
After birth, the midwife cuts and ties the cord, washes the newborn baby, and then uses a clean cloth prepared for the newborn, wrapping him or her lovingly and handing him to mother. The word nisaju is a special grebo word meaning firstborn child. Being nisaju is unique and a highly cherished position. When the grebo person hears the words jupludalo, newborn cloth, and nisaju, firstborn, it creates a very clear picture that this child was born in a humble and a true grebo way. People will proclaim, he is one of us. And that is the main idea of Christmas. It's so true. <laughs> but some of the most powerful words of the Christmas story is, unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior has been born. And I said unto you, which is King James, but in, you know, uh, for you or your Savior, that taking that that pronoun and saying this didn't just happen but it happened for you mm-hmm. and i love the way that the uh, the grabo translation personalizes that mm-hmm. uh, for people that in every culture the gospel message is essentially translatable if we can <laughs> use that term but that's i mean that is that is the whole point is that uh, it is god who created and then redeems all of these cultures and most of the world's history when they think of what is out there and who do we relate to their concept of a greater being or a god is somebody that's just local there or for them and throughout the scriptures the lord god claims to be god of the entire mm-hmm. world and then he doesn't just come and claim that kingship by forcing you to go his way he allows you know the translation and the incarnation of the message to also say he's one of us and he's always been one of us we are we are his people the word made flesh right and that is exactly what rhoda hoag shares in her christmas story so this is the retelling of a very special christmas for her Reverend Claude and Rhoda Hogue served in Africa for 23 years. One of the most memorable experiences happened during the Christmas season in a village in northern Ghana. The village had a nativity scene, said Rhoda, complete with Mary and Joseph and a few animals, but the manger was empty. I couldn't imagine who or what was going to fill the role of baby Jesus. There were no babies that I could see, and dolls were rare. Much to her surprise, though, the girl playing Mary reached behind her back and pulled out a Bible. She placed the book in the manger. It was moving to see how much was placed on Scripture that this book would be used to represent Jesus. And how insightful Jesus is the word. What could be more appropriate than putting a Bible in the manger to represent the Savior of the world? I love it. (laughs) The word made flesh when that word speaks. And, you know, when working in a, a Bible translation ministry, you know, ultimately, of course, we don't worship the Bible. Right. Uh, it's the Christ that the Bible testifies to. Yet there's something very, very close and powerful between that proclaimed word and who it points to. And the fact that that word is is powerful, it acts and it moves. And so what a lovely representation of this is the savior right. of the world and the savior of the world is found here right yeah right. yeah the foundation of our faith is reading his word and how 
we can grow and that we're just on this daily journey of walking alongside each other but that God is leading us and that like you said, that it's found in the words of scripture that we are able to know truth and that it will set us free. Yeah. And we've got the privilege of working in this ministry of, of working as missionaries and with uh, partners in the, the local context, uh, folks that God has. There's a different story for every person, right? I mean, God has raised up. They may already be part of uh, a church that is formed that is seeking to know God more and more deeply by access to the Word of God. It may be part of a a group that isn't Christian yet, but somebody knows the language well and says, I want to help do this. And in that process, the Word of God being active transforms their lives and they come to know the true and living God. It could be uh, there are some places in the world where Bible translation is happening, where persecution still happens uh, of Christians. And again, that is really the Christian experience throughout most of the world. We grew up in a, uh, and we come from a European context, ancestrally, many of us listening even as well, where Christianity's had a place of power and and, uh, privilege for a long time. Uh, But most of the world uh, through the history of the church hasn't experienced mm-hmm. that, that there has, the church does not need to have that power and that prestige for the gospel to go forth. In fact, it seems mm-hmm. like it may go forth even more effectively <laughs> when that's not the case. And so even, you know, today as as folks are listening to this podcast, there are Christians at work in the world sharing the good news in situations that are dangerous and desperate. And we want to share one of those stories from uh, one of our contexts uh, about um a guy who we'll call, uh, for safety purposes, Pastor Santi. Pastor Santi has been an integral part of our project's literacy and scripture engagement program over the last several years. Toward the end of 2017, our team had asked him to help with a gospel film dubbing project into the Kon language, and Kon is a, a pseudonym for the language, again, for purposes of safety. And uh, he was to read the part of Abraham in three short Bible story videos from the series called God provides. Since Pastor Santi came to faith, he's been used by God to plant and disciple several churches in his home province in the country where we work, including a number of house churches among other tribal groups. In December 2017, after completing the audio recordings in our studio for two of the God Provides videos, he was asked by a group of those house churches to come and preach for a village Christmas celebration in another district. He agreed to come and preach, but reminded the villagers that they would need to get permission from local authorities to do this. They assured him they would take the necessary steps. Just a week or so before the celebration, he finished his part on the second film, and we saw him at a Christmas service at a house church near our home. He preached a beautiful message about our Savior Jesus, emphasizing the fact that Jesus had been willing to come from heaven to be born into the middle of the refuse of humanity. The word in the national language that's prefixed to a number of verbs indicating various vices and bad habits is key. This happens to be the same word as dung. Pastor Santi recalled how Christ had been willing to be born in an animal pen, which local people easily understand to be full of the smell of dung and the like. He explained how Jesus was not only willing to do this, but to be born into the midst of our various human vices and failings to save us from them and the punishment that we deserve. It was for this purpose, the purpose of lifting us out of the dung of our sins, that he came into the world. 
A week after we saw him there, he went up to the hill village where the Christmas celebration was to take place. The village believers had also invited a team to show a Christmas film or Christian film in the national language prior to his arrival, and a large crowd had gathered. But someone in the village had complained to the authorities, and when it was asked whether they had secured proper permission to carry out this Christmas celebration, it turned out that they hadn't. So shortly after Pastor Santi arrived, before he even had the opportunity to preach his Christmas message, he was accused, along with the film team, of breaking the law. He and the film team were taken into custody and sent to the district police station and later that evening to the provincial jail while the authorities investigated and sorted the matter out. Late at night on what would have been Christmas Eve, instead of preaching a message to encourage these young believers in their faith about all that Christ had done for them, he found himself being put into a holding cell with drug addicts, thieves, brawlers, and sex offenders at the provincial lockup. There was hardly any space on the hard floor to find room to lay down. It was cold, and he had no blanket. He worried about his wife and what she would do when he didn't come home and found out that he was in jail for preaching the gospel. He didn't know what exactly the charges would be or how long it might take to work through this misunderstanding. He started to despair about the situation he found himself caught in. He lay curled up on the hard floor awake with these worries swirling through his mind, smelled the urine and feces of the cell's common commode, and began feeling sorry for himself and asking God why. But at that moment, he recalled that on Christmas Eve, his Savior Jesus had been born in very uncomfortable circumstances, probably less comfortable even than his current state, and that Jesus had been willing to do this for him and all the dung of humanity, even the lawbreakers laying around him and those who had taken him captive. He felt a strong impression that the Lord was saying to him, I was born into an animal pen for you and all these people tonight. Your plan was to preach in the village, but my plan for you here is share the good news you have with them, even your captors. As morning broke, Pastor Santi took heart in these words that God had a purpose for him being in that jail. As the various inmates stirred awake and saw their new guest, they greeted him and asked what he was in for. He answered that he was in there because he put his faith in God and in his Savior, Jesus Christ, and that there was a misunderstanding about celebrating Jesus' birth. Having sparked their interest, they began to ask him what all that meant, and he explained who Jesus was and how Jesus had called him out of a life of drunkenness and womanizing many years earlier to come and follow him and to trust him for the forgiveness of his sins. The other captors listened with sincere intent as he shared his life story and the story of how Jesus had accomplished the world's salvation through his birth, life, death on a cross, and resurrection from the dead. As the morning went on, the authorities came to the cell to summon him for questioning. Though he was nervous about how to answer, suddenly God gave him a boldness that he should just tell them the truth. In the interrogation room, the lead police officer asked him pointedly, Why are you a Christian? What did Jesus do for you? perhaps thinking that he was benefiting from this work of telling people about God by getting a salary or some other compensation. But Pastor Santi, with new courage, began to tell his interrogators his testimony. A number of years ago, after leading a life of excess, I had gotten sick and had thought I was going to die. A man from a nearby village came to our village to share the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. I had nowhere else to turn for help or healing, so when I heard these things, I began to think that maybe Jesus could help me, not only to heal me from my sickness, but to change my life and to clean me up. 
Pastor Santi told the officers that he had been given the opportunity by the man to become a Christian by trusting in Jesus, and he had decided to give Jesus his life. I asked God to clean me up so that I could have a new life. When that man prayed for me to be healed, I was healed. God not only healed my body, but he forgave my sins and changed my life, making me new. Pastor Santi later reflected, I wasn't afraid because I was telling the police the true story of what Jesus had done in my life. The Spirit helped me stay strong, speak truth, and not be afraid. I saw clearly as they listened to my words attentively that it was God's plan for me to share with these police officers. Though it took a month of time in jail to work out his case, Pastor Santi had several other opportunities to share about God's love in Jesus, both with the other inmates as well as with the police. Christians around the world helped with a gift to pay a sizable fine that was assessed for him and the film team, and in the end, they were all released, but not before the seeds of the gospel were planted in many new hearts. Wow. I love this story so much. But I also, as I'm listening and reflecting, I just wonder at the power of the Holy Spirit to change that fear into a boldness. Because when he asks why, I think that I would probably be more than just why. I would probably be a little angry, not at just you know the the circumstance but also why hadn't they like gotten the permit why god why 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 and a little anger but the beauty here of a life transformed by the gospel and how he took this situation and glorified god just so beautiful and the way that uh, the holy spirit prepared his heart by the message he had already been proclaiming and then all of a sudden hey these these images and things he's using to describe jesus coming in the world now he's sitting literally in them and the holy spirit brings them to his mind to say this is this is why and uh, just um um this part where he says uh I began to think that maybe Jesus could help me. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> that is what Christmas is all about and what the gospel is all about. If you, if anyone listening to this podcast is also wondering, can Jesus help me? The answer is yes. And um, he shows that in, in Jesus becoming man. I mean, that is what Christmas is all about. The incarnation is God saying, uh, Jesus can help you. And... Um, whatever it takes, whatever we have to go through. Um, this man <laughs> spent a month in jail and um, like a modern day book of Acts story, mm-hmm. um, he just spread the gospel and sent a whole bunch of other people out with it. Just right. that's a Christmas to remember. That is a different Christmas. Exactly. And how maybe we haven't uh, found ourselves in a prison cell. Right. But maybe in some other situation that, you know, has tested us and we feel drained and we're at the bottom and how God has reached out and lifts us up and um, has wonderful, beautiful plans uh, for us um, that maybe it's it's going to look different for each one of us. But ultimately, it's a relationship with him and 
how we've been called to not only that, but then to share that with others, that it's not uh, a light to hide under a basket, you know, and it's not a cold drink of water to keep to ourselves, but to pass that along. And uh, just the beauty of that this Christmas season that, you know, even in spite of the, the situations that we find ourselves in, that he is uh, above all and through all and that he has a plan for each and every one of us. Yeah, it can be so easy in, in uh, again, now I'm thinking more from just our own culture, Western culture, to um, lose sight of the fact that no matter what's going on right now, um, it's not like God forgot about us. Right. Um, I mean, so I, I doubt anybody listening here is 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 listening or has recently spent time in a prison cell on Christmas for preaching the gospel. I mean, those three things together kind of exclude most of us. <laughs> but um, but you may be feeling imprisoned by something. Um, the pandemic may have made you feel in prison this year, uh, that uh, you can't go and, and see the people and do the things uh, that you would normally do and, and be with folks. Or um, uh, I know a lot of folks that have lost loved ones um, because of the pandemic or or just circumstances that were affected by it and um yeah it's god is still in all these things and um it's so easy to blame like when uh, pastor santi was asking god why and you mentioned well you know he could very easily have been saying why didn't people do their jobs and whatever but um Every circumstance we're in has the potential to be redeemed at some point, um, and and God can work through it. Absolutely, absolutely. And like you said, right in that situation, even in the prison cell, like he had the opportunity to share the gospel, and yeah. he he took it. And like you said, like the modern day Acts story, and we we take courage from those uh, stories of the faith of men and women who uh, stood by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? It's not our own strength, but trusting that uh, there is, in fact, good to come out of every circumstance that um, God places in our lives that we can um, be just a witness to his goodness, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's really what Christmas is all about. It's, you think about Linus and his blanket. I'm probably not. I mean, Christmas is all about um, God saying um, the way things normally go. Uh, I have something better than that. And uh, whatever sin or hurt or pain or or problem or addiction or broken relationship none of those things can have the last word the gospel has the last word and uh, that's why it's a privilege to well first of all to just be called and and in faith and to follow the lord but also to work in mission and to share the good mm-hmm. news with uh, with others as well i hope that as you listen and reflect on uh, whatever you're listening to this if it's still christmas break christmas eve that uh, no matter what, because Christmas and the Incarnation is really a, a 365, or in 2020 where we had an extra day, 366 day a year thing, a reality, right? That uh, God became man 
change the course of the universe forever. And we're thankful for the privilege to to work together with our partners around the world to um, to take this gospel to um, to review it again, to think through how to speak it again, mm-hmm. how to uh, really reflect that Jesus is one of us, how to focus on parts of the scripture that speak to different uh, cultural things and recognize that the gospel is for all humanity, not bound to any culture, yet at home in every single one of them. Oh. We're so thankful for all of you who have decided to join us on this uh, Christmas special, and we are so very thankful for your prayers and your support and love to uh, hear your stories too. Absolutely. So please feel free to reach out and share that Christmas joy. And we, from all of LBT, from our missionaries, our staff, and our partners, want to wish you a very merry and blessed Christmas. Thanks to all our missionaries, partners, and staff who submitted their Christmas stories for this podcast episode. For you, our listeners, we pray it was a blessing to you, and thank you for the privilege of sharing a little bit of our collective lives with you. From each and every one of us at LBT, missionary staff, and partners around the world, may God give you a most joyous Christmas and a blessed new year. Thank you for listening to the Essentially Translatable podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. Look for past episodes of the podcast at lbt.org podcast or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Lutheran Bible Translator's social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or go to lbt.org to find out how you can get involved in the Bible translation movement and put God's Word in their hands. This episode of the Essentially Translatable podcast was written and directed by Emily Wilson and distributed by Sarah Lyons. Technical support for this episode was provided by Caleb Rodewald. Our super talented editor and producer is Andrew Olson. Executive producer is Amy Gertz. That festive Christmas podcast artwork was designed by Caleb Rodewald. Music written and performed by Rob Bite. I'm your host, Rich Rodowski. So long for now.